welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and happy to welcome back to the show Mike from the Amateur Artures Podcast. Mike, welcome back. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, it's uh, I'm, it's always a pleasure to talk with you about movies, and I'm definitely super excited to be back on, on your show to talk about our particular movie today. Absolutely, because today we are reviewing La La Land, starring Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, John Legend, and Rosemarie DeWitt. Music by Justin Hurwitz, choreography by Mandy Moore, no, not that one, the choreographer, and directed by Damien Chazelle, released in 2016 on a $30 million budget. Grossed $446 million worldwide, garnered critical acclaim, won five Academy Awards, almost won Best Picture before they realized they had the wrong card. I mean, this was a big one. So, Mike, last November we had you on. You did Sound of Music, classic musical, Oscar winner, you know, well-regarded. And you come back this year and you want to do La La Land. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I honestly didn't realize that until after I made the suggestion because you reach out to me and said, "Oh, like, would you like to just do like another film review? Just there's no themes, whatever you want." And I threw a few names out there. Um, which one? It's funny enough. I mentioned Whiplash as one of them. You know, being Chazelle, and and like those first few reviews, I said, "Oh, like it's going to be like nothing but like positive." Uh, critiques and and uh and just a conversation because the movies that i first discussed were were all just favorites of mine and then i said well la la land's been on my mind so maybe we can do that too uh just because i have more of a uh, more opinions about that and not that it's i don't want to like show my hand but it's not that it's not positive but it's also like not the greatest either so i uh and i think you immediately were like yeah no we're la la land sounds like a much better discussion so yeah, it didn't really dawn on me until like, oh yeah, I've been on film uh, film strip twice, and or I guess like film film wise, and they're both musicals, which you know is fine. I, I I love musicals; they're definitely one of my favorite genres of filmmaking, and I think La La Land is going to be a much thorough, uh, deeper discussion than the sound of music was. So that was kind of where I was coming from. I just think we can have a really fun conversation about La La Land. Yeah, I do think there's a lot to say about it because I. I have a complicated relationship with this movie. I'll just say now when it was coming out, it, it, this was at a time when I, I used to do the thing where I tried to see everything that was nominated for best picture, you know, to try to consume it. And I just got out of the habit of that when they expanded the field to 10 and 12 and 15 movies and all that stuff. And I was like, I can't do that. So I would just read a lot of reviews and I would try to pick up on buzz about things. And I kept hearing about this one. And I thought that just sounds like, we're going to award and reward a great cover of a song I already liked once. And I don't know that I, I'm, I'm old enough now that I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I really want to go back and relive that, you know? I, I, and so I, I didn't see it in theaters. I did rent it and, and I watched it and I remember thinking like, eh, you know, and then I just didn't think about it again. And so when you brought it up. I said, okay, what do I remember about La La Land besides the people that are in it? You know, if I, if someone asked me to describe what's the story of La La Land, and all I can remember was we stopped traffic a few times with a bunch of huge musical numbers. John Legend throws down with some jazz fusion pop thing and Ryan Gosling plays the piano. And that's all I could remember hmm. about it. And I thought, well, okay, that says a lot because what I went into this going like, okay, well clearly I missed something because this movie, again, ton of critical acclaim made a 
boatload of money. Uh, was, is well regarded by people in the genre. But then I started asking a lot of my theater friends, particularly musical theater friends that I've made in the last year, like, yeah, what do you think of La La Land? And Mike, the the word disgust doesn't quite cover it for most of them. Most yeah, of my I friends figured. that do that hate this movie. And I asked each of them to kind of weigh in, well, why? And the the common theme among them was, like I had said in my initial impression before I ever saw the movie, was it's just a cover of better musicals. And then they would roll off things that I hadn't seen that were musicals, and I thought, okay. And so I would go and look up clips and watch a couple of other movies, and I thought, okay, I get what they're saying now. So what I'm interested in tonight is, as we dissect this, because the plot of this isn't really that complicated. It's not like Inception yeah. when I was on your show, and we, you know, we could have spent five hours diving into that. And it was a lot of fun. I recommend people go check out the Amateur Artur show uh, with the Inception show because I think we had a great conversation on that one. But I I don't think that we're going to get into the depth of the plot here. It's more about what is it about this movie that works so well and what doesn't and where where am I missing it and maybe a lot of other people missing on this thing. So I like I said, I had a complicated relationship with La La Land. Yeah, I, I do as well, because I've had all like the swings of emotions with this movie. So like this movie came out when I it was like the middle of my junior year of college. And I absolutely love Whiplash. Whiplash is one of my it's, it's right now. It's my second favorite film of all time. Uh, I consumed Whiplash to such a degree, like people might think it's an obsession. And I think that film is almost like an objective masterpiece. It's, it's amazing. So, you know, when I hear, Oh, Damien Giselle, the director of my second favorite movie that, and it had such a profound impact on me when I had seen it. And it was like a big drive for me. Um, when he's, you know, he's making a musical. I was like, okay, I was amped. I was ready for this to go. Uh, me, Brian and his girlfriend, we went, uh, we, we drove, I think it was somewhere, in like media Pennsylvania, which was maybe like 45 minutes away. We saw an early showing and it was funny because I guess the co-composer is from that area. And we showed up at this screening and there's like tons of, I mean, obviously it was, I figured there's gonna be tons of people because there's a lot of hype around this movie, but they're like giving out like free popcorn and like all these people, they have like signs and stuff. I'm like, what's going on? And then some woman steps out and says, Oh, I think his name's like Benji or something. It's like, oh, Benji would be so proud of like that. He's part of this. We're proud of him. I was like, what's going on? And then they're like, oh, here's a special message from Benji and Justin Horowitz. And they had like a screening of just like, oh, thanks everyone for showing up. And I was like, wait, is like, is Damien Giselle and like Justin Horowitz about to show up? Because that 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 would be amazing. And they didn't. But um, and I remember sitting there and just at first loving this movie. Like I was just so mesmerized by the colors and the music and uh, most of the performance or some of the performances, I should say. And then I saw it again in theaters with the girl I was dating at the time. It's like, oh, you're going to really like this because she was a dancer and stuff. And then it's funny because this is also one of those movies that I told my parents that we, we raved about. We're like, you guys should really see this. You're going to love it. And then they saw it. And it was the worst thing that can happen for a movie buff when uh they they come back and they said it sucked and they didn't just say like it wasn't good they hated the movie but they couldn't really like articulate why they hated it um outside of just like superficial reasons but that's okay they're they're like very casual moviegoers but it's interesting because now that i'm getting older and i've seen the films that i I, well i've been exposed to more musicals uh, i feel like i'm matured as a as a film goer and like a, a film reviewer 
and I've seen specifically the works that inspired La La Land, I'm like completely 180 on this. Well, I don't hate the movie, but my my viewpoint is drastically changed because I've seen the works that this is that has inspired this, and and specifically Jacques Demy in the French New Wave, and we'll definitely talk about uh, Demi and Chazelle in their relationship, but you just everything that Demi does, she feels so effortlessly and it just is so almost streamlined to per, like perfection. And for Chazelle, it just you it feels like he's trying so hard. And that's the problem. Where if you're feels effortlessly with Demi, it feels so I don't wanna I don't wanna say disingenuine because I do feel like Chazelle is trying, but it just it feels like you're watching a movie, whereas you watch something like the Young Girls of Rocheford or um, the Umbrellas of Chorberg, it just it just you don't it, you just uh, are taken out of the moment like that that uh, the fourth wall is broken. Like you feel you feel so immersed in these films that here you're just always it's always omnipresent that you're watching a film like that that yeah. viewpoint never goes away. It's really obvious you're watching a movie, and you called him out, and and I I didn't mention him in the open there because Justin Hurwitz is. Giselle's Harvard roommate or classmate or whatever, and they had done movies together. But Pasek and Paul, Benji Pasek, Justin Paul are, you know, really big in musical theater. They did Dear Evan Hansen, which I think is one of the best musical theater things in the last 10 years. They're making that into a movie. I'm really excited for that. They do good work. And I, di- I didn't know that they were responsible for the lyrics of this until after the fact. Like I, this time I was like, some of this feels a lot like Dear Evan Hansen for like half a second. Like there's a little bit of that wrote sentimentality but almost like uh, i call i call them uh cynical sentimentality and like they know yep. how to write for that attitude especially for the emma stone character and i feel like that's just sort of the people she plays all the time anyway and ryan gosling certainly can do that too and so i when i looked it up i was like oh okay now that totally makes sense that they were the songwriters of this I think it's neat that you've had that reaction to it over time because it's for me, that's always fun. Like, you know, in my musical past and things, I would meet people that talk about bands that they really like. And at the time it was like the it band. And I'd go like, have you ever heard of a band called the replacements? And then they'll go listen to it. It's like, Oh, that's where all that really comes from. I'm like, yeah. Or (laughs) listen to early REM. And they're like, no, why would I do that? I'm like, no, trust me. And they listen and they go, oh, that's where that is. And so it's neat to go back and find roots of things. And that doesn't always destroy things for you, but it does open it up differently for you. And I think you, you've laid something out about Chazelle that I would say is a fair criticism. There is something incredibly anxious and sweaty and forced and nerve-wracking about his films and his filmmaking style whiplash is really the culmination of that the relationship between jk simmons and miles teller is a is almost like the relationship between giselle and his work you know he's Mm -hmm. trying to make it perfect and he's going to beat it into perfection even if it hates him for it and he ends up hating it and i don't i don't know if that's the case it's just what i feel like when i watch his movies i see his stuff I'm like, there's something about this that is permanently artificial at all times. And I guess we should get into it before we we go any further, Mike. Give people the plot. I'm going to try to cut through this as close as I can. All right. And we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay. Two struggling artists living in Los Angeles meet through several chance encounters and fall in love while each chases a dream of their own. 
For Sebastian, played by Ryan Gosling, it's jazz piano. And for Mia, played by Emma Stone, it's acting. We follow the couple through multiple missed opportunities. Sebastian reluctantly takes a steady gig with a jazz pop fusion band led by John Legend while incurring Mia to write and star in her own one-act play. Mia's play receives mixed reviews, and she becomes furious at Sebastian, who missed the performance because he's shooting a music video with his band. She breaks off their relationship and moves home. Sebastian receives a call from a casting director, though, who attended Mia's performance and really liked it. And so he drives to her hometown and convinces her to give it one more shot. And while she begins to have success and they confess that they do love each other, they don't see a future together. We flash forward to five years later and Mia has made the big time. She's married. She has a kid. She's got a great career. Sebastian has opened his own jazz club based off a concept Mia created for him when they were dating. And when Sebastian sees Mia in the crowd, he plays their song on a piano. And we see a dream sequence of what might have been had the two stayed together. Mia smiles and leaves with her husband. By the way, did I mention that this is a musical like we talked about? And almost everything I just described unfolds through song in credits. Thank God. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, as a narrative, if that was just the drama that we saw and there was just music punctuating it, the actors weren't singing their way through it and things. I would almost say like, eh, it's a good B-level rom-com with a twist because they don't end up together. And that's the whole thing with Chazelle here. He's like, I wanted to tell the classic Hollywood story of the star-crossed artist lovers, but that it didn't really work out because in the real world, it oftentimes doesn't work out. And you do have to trade your, your passion for glory, you know, and they both do. And if that had just been the dramatic narrative of this, I might could give it a pass, even as a play. I could see like, ah, you can have some good emotional threads here. You know, you give somebody that knows how to write good dialogue and make that work. Sure. But as a musical, Mike, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know that the concept is really musical worthy. Following two artists to form a relationship, but don't reach the end together. Yeah. And, and before, like, I, I feel like before we get like really into the the, the plot, like I, th- I think we should delve into a little bit more of like, uh, like Chazelle and his and his work, as well as like a little bit of Demi, because obviously, like I mentioned earlier, Demi is the um, the French New Wave director. This he is like you watch those films that I mentioned earlier, specifically Young Girls of Rochefort and the Umbrellas of uh, Chorberg. You see it, you see those movies here. But so Chazelle is definitely a very nostalgic director. Um, I think specifically, you see it whole a whole lot in in La La Land and Whiplash a little bit too, but he like warps the nostalgia where people think of nostalgias. Oh, this is nice. These are like, it's uh we long for that. He almost looks at his past. Like you said, he, it's, it's like a cynical viewpoint of nostalgia and, and his themes and his work are just a lot of the sacrifice for passion over, you know, personal wants and needs. And, uh, and, 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 and so, and I've been thinking about this a lot too when I just reviewing his work. So I specifically, I don't know if you've seen his first film, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. His It was his um, Harvard thesis film. As I've, a film, I've seen that, Brian and I have talked about it. It's it's a very competent student film. If anything, it's it's an exceptional student film. Um, and and again, it, it essentially Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench is about this guy, this, this guy who's named Guy, um, and Madeline and their relationship or the beginning of the film ends with their relationship ending because guy wants to be with another person. And then throughout the film, we see how they respond to the breakup and essentially I don't want to like 
guy starts to have second quest their second doubts and then madeline like moves on and like the end of the film is they get back or they meet and it's like oh do they do they not get back together and that is also marketed as a musical and like if you look up the guy in madeline on a park bench on youtube you'll be like it's like tap dancing and all like different jazz and you're like oh this looks like like a fun indie musical and it's not like it's weird he's like trying to rewrite it and you can see like the seeds planted there that come back in la la land um yeah can we we talk about that for a second like how obsessed this guy is with everything fred astaire has ever done like like this whole and and i'm not gonna ding mandy Moore. i think the the choreography she put together would look awesome on a stage it's people who can dance (laughs) yeah it's hard to see it in a 3d format and that that's what's so I guess just strange and striking about this is, and maybe it's just because I can't get out of my head that you know, we're in the 21st century and the idea that people would just stop their entire lives on the LA freeway to have a song and dance number to open a show, to open a movie just seems like it's something from a different time that, it, but it's trying to be in this time too. And it just, I don't know. Like I, I had all kinds of, reactions to that because on one hand I'm like well it's well choreographed and it's well shot Linus Nangren does a great job with the camera and Chazelle does a good job of moving it around but I don't really feel like that's telling me anything like the opening song uh, Another Day in the Sun is supposed to introduce us to this entire this idea right it's it's Hollywood everything's gorgeous and the next thing we have is Road Rage which is much more like real life and that's why I say like when you mix all that cynicism with all this glossy overt happiness i don't think the soup quite comes together you know what i mean it's 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 too much salt and too much white pepper i don't know like i i was really like just taken aback at the opening bit because one our our leads aren't in it and so i realized none of these people are of any consequence to us like two seconds into it and i i also know like okay this is going to be a long ride. And this movie's barely over two hours long. You take out the credits, it's two hours. And I, I felt every second of it. Like it was, I, I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I just hit it wrong, but I tried watching it twice. I mean, I watched this twice for this review, different times a day. <laughs> and I felt the same way about it both times. I was like, it's just such a, a dumb way to open a movie. that's <laughs> supposed to be taken seriously. If they, if the whole thing was a farce, I'd be like, okay, it's a Muppet movie. But it's not. Well, and it's funny because, I mean, wh- regardless of what you think about Giselle, like, he's definitely not a lazy director. He has lots of ambition, passion, and drive. Now, whether or not, like, those pieces fall together. Um, but and th- but I, I do think, like, this dude needs to keep making movies. Like, he is one of those young filmmakers that, I mean, he's the youngest director to ever win Best Director, the category Best Director. And, and I think like, he deserves it at that point. I mean, he's lots of ambition and drive. And it's funny, like you mentioned the opening scene. Well, he, so I actually kind of like the opening scene and I kind of like the pairing. Like if you listen to those lyrics, like it's all about, like it's this sunny sunshine, like bright colors, like very fantastic. Oh, it's another day of sun. But they're like talking about like leaving loved ones and like being late on rent. And like, it's like things that induce anxiety, just thinking about it, but they're like, Oh, it's okay. It's all about like the limelight of Hollywood. and It's all going to be worth it. And I think Chazelle, like he's definitely trying to rewrite the modern musical and with inspirations from the past, which is fine. But my issue, why I mentioned like guy and Madeline here, like these are marketed as musicals, but like 
and like you said in the end of the plot, uh, the plot review, well, it's all in song. But like to me, I would make the argument like this: it's it's like un it's it's unfairly marketed as a musical because like it is, but it isn't. I feel like the music is so infrequent. Like so, we have the first twenty minutes, which I'm like, okay, I actually really dig the first twenty minutes. I dig the first twenty minutes and like the last. 15 minutes of the movie but that in between i'm just like there's it's the music is so infrequent and in between uh, it, it doesn't feel like a musical it feels like a drama that they're just in infu- they're trying to infuse music artificially into it um so but i actually really like the opening number uh i actually love the behind the scenes of when they're blocking the shots and Chazelle just like filmed it on a back studio lot with his iPhone and he's like moving the camera and he's like, this is what I want in my cinematography or uh, in other scenes, like in the yeah. jazz cafe, you see him, like you see the camera operator and he's like tapping him when they do the, the whip pans with the beat of the music. I'm like, okay, like I really, I like this. I'm going with it. I like the colors. Like I can see the influences. I'm going with it. I, I like the whole opening, like, Oh, like shot in, Panovision or whatever, La La Land, and I, I'm 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 going with the beginning of this movie, which is funny that you're having a different reaction. Yeah, I I didn't jump into it initially because again, I think I've seen that done so many other ways better, and again, it feels so odd to smash from that to again the road rage incident, which is a good piece of comedy because I mean I I look at Emma Stone and I see the work she's done. And I really appreciate her as a comedic actress. I think she sings fine. She dances okay. I, you know, she won the Academy Award. I don't know that she totally deserved it that year. We could talk about that, you know, another day. But because that's another discussion. But she's fine. She's good in it. And Ryan Gosling, as a someone who would honk his horn at you and be like, "Get the hell out of my way in the traffic," I, I get it. And she would be the kind of person that would flip him off. And I'm like, okay, so this clearly is a director that realizes who his actors are and the types that they play. And so when he drops him into the movie, I did think it was smart that he drops in the, here's what you know these people to be. Now I'm going to take you on their love story. You know, their tragic love story, as it were. And I do think Emma Stone's opening song, the someone in the crowd song's pretty fun. And yeah. the, the ensemble of people with her, I think like Jessica Roth is fun. And, you know, they, they, they have some fun in that. And you see that she is, she's trying to be actress, but she doesn't want to do the things that like young aspiring actresses have to do and I mean, i've heard jeff daniels talk about this when he left hollywood and moved back to michigan you know 30 something years ago or whatever that he just wasn't willing to go and do all the hobnob and the party scene to get roles that just wasn't who he was he wanted to he was a theater guy he wanted to do work and you know do it in film but he didn't want to be a star you know and, and he talks about that and i kind of get that we're taking someone here who really has passion for acting but has gotten to the point now where she's been there so long that she's like, I got to do something. I'll take anything. So she's trying out for like the lame cop show and, you know, whatever, you know, CSI, you know, New Orleans or whatever, you know, she's, she's trying out for and just a nothing role just so she can get credits. So she keep her SAG card going. You know, I mean, and I, I've had friends that worked in the field and they talk about that. Like sometimes you just get desperate for just cast me in something. Right. I, I think it was ingenious to cast this with not young, like super fresh face, people but instead to have people who had a little bit of age to them like they're in their mid to late 20s they've been around a while they've they've tried and failed enough that there's a little bit of edge to them and i I liked that in in the characters because i thought it would set up something different the problem is is that that narratively when they do have dialogue mike i'm not 
buying it. I'm not getting it. And I think I think the problem is that I don't think Giselle knows how to write good dialogue. I, I really don't. He could have used somebody like Neil LeBute to come in and do that for him, who writes in the same I mean the same kind of age range and stuff like that, but would have really punched it up and made it maybe too dark for the happy go lucky musical this is supposed to be. But again, this is supposed to be a musical with an edge. So I, I would rather them just gone whole hog to the edge rather than halfway. Yeah, and Chazelle, yeah, I and I think like Whiplash. Well, he's a very visual director, which is why I love Whiplash. I'm a, like you know me. You've seen the short films that I've made. You've seen like some of the photography I've done. I'm a very visual heavy person. Not that I can't appreciate like good dialogue. It's just not my strong suit. And I, you know, shy away from from that because I know my words will not. It, it'll just seem trite and and just disingenuous. So I stay away from that. I get Brian, who's the writer. He I get him to help write dialogue. And, and I feel like Chazelle wants to do, like, he has these messages, but it's okay to ask someone, like, this, this is what I'm trying to convey. Can you please help me with this? Because, you know, the, his vision, like, every frame's a painting with his work. And I think he definitely knows what he wants. And, you know, Whiplash is definitely a very, like, economical use of dialogue. It's very much like James Cameron. It's just, you know, this is what we need to convey in this situation. He gets good actors uh, to convey that. But it's all about the expressions that they have and here yeah we're he you know is trying to convey all of this passion through dialogue and through song and it's like not really working i mean like i said i think someone in the crowd is also a very fun song it's very up i i think it's i think the visuals are also very stimulating you know with the dresses them walking down i like the camera moving through the this this tiny uh house that like four people are renting and then we go to the party and like everything freezes and it's in slow-mo and then the dude jumps off the roof into the pool and like the camera's spinning all over the place like really echoing like what these parties are and then over the top bombastic fireworks in the sky and um and i and i'm like okay like i i'm digging this but yeah you're right like and then we and then we get to um you know like seb plant or sebastian playing at the club with jk simmons and you know, it's just, you know, play the hits. Uh, he's playing holiday but, stuff. And then he just improvs this yeah. big, like, elaborate thing. And then J.K. Simmons is like, get the hell out. And I'm still, like, at this point, I'm still going with the movie. Because I think Ryan Gosling definitely has that charisma. Um, he can both play, given the right director, he can play both the 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 um, the synthetic robot like he does in you know, in Blade Runner, or he can, you know, be the heartthrob in the notebook. Like he can do everything. Like, I think given the right material, he can do it. Well, he can, he can be so quietly intense too. something like drive, you know, or yeah. place beyond the pines, which is you know very different roles. I mean, I love the way the guy acts. I really do like Ryan Gosling. I think he's immensely talented and, and he picks really interesting stuff to do in between doing the the big stuff you know the paycheck movies if you will uh, or whatever but i think he's he's a little more picky than even some of the the group that came out of his area uh but the the thing that i like about his character is that he he refuses to just keep playing you know jingle bells on the piano when he can do so much more but it's his own tip in the jar and just, right you know he's, yeah. he's there that's the that's the dude he's like all right i got it but he he recognizes that he's in a place where he's he's driving without insurance he's like overdue on his rent but he he won't 
give in to what he thinks is selling out and he's just just play the classics i don't give i don't care what you got just play the classics. i don't care about your music and he just can't help himself for his music and his and his craft well see but that's the problem though with the guy and and i mean i get it yes that's supposed to be his character the way he's written is he's got these principles that he just absolutely can't let go of right but you realize that people like that do wind up where he winds up in the movie, yeah. not working in the field they want to work in. Because yeah, and I, 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 yeah, well, he has a great conversation with John Legend later when he's trying out for the band, and I love it. And I think this is John Legend also as as a really talented musician talking about. Look, at some point you got to decide: do you want to you know eat or do you want to stick to your principles? He's told you're trying to keep jazz alive. Nobody nineteen knows what that is, man. He said, you're playing to 90-year-old people in the club. He said, you, you can't just be so beholden to the purity that you don't move to the next step. Or, or you, you decide, hey, I'm, I'm going to not do this anymore. I'm going to do something else. You know, like that's, that's, the, yeah. that's his journey. And that's what I think is neat about their relationship because they have fine chemistry together. Like it, it is what it is. It's, it's sort of rote Hollywood, and I'm fine with it. They're pretty people and they wind up together. Everybody in this movie is gorgeous, which is ridiculous, uh, too, because even in Hollywood, that's not true. But, you know, they wind up together, you're fine or whatever. But I, I do appreciate the fact that they they do have a good tay-to-tay with one another. And, like, you can see that, like, they, they got along. They could pick back and forth and have a little fun. There's some sweet fun to their relationship. That's why I say this movie would be so much better if it was just a straight dramedy. You know, and again, you had somebody writing dialogue for people that could really do it. This, though, because we know they're they're not going to like the whole setup is that they don't make it, you know, and they're going to have to sell each other out to get what they want in life. And I I don't know, like there's there's a a story in that, but I don't think we ever get there with these people. Like that's that's what I'm saying. And I don't want to blame it all on the director. I think he's this is his movie, his vision. He loves this stuff. Totally can tell. And he's got his, you know, his best friend doing the music, and he's got the hottest songwriters on Broadway doing his lyrics. I mean, it's a, it is the formula for success. How they got to win the Super Bowl with this, and they almost did. I mean, they made a, you know, boatload of money. They won a lot of Academy Awards. I mean, clearly it worked. But I'm saying as somebody who likes musicals again and is watching this, I feel like I'm watching people play musical in a movie that really just wants to be a good small drama. Yeah, and it's and we'll get to their relationship. I feel like I have more to say about their relationship towards the end of the movie, um, and we'll get there when we get to that like that closing number. Because like I said, I I like the like our I like the ambition, and I kind of like where they go at the end. Um, yeah, I and this is where I kind of wish that uh, we they casted people that you know you know up and coming Broadway stars or you know people. I mean, look at Hamilton. Hamilton. I think was at this point, or I, th- I think it was getting. Re- it just came out at this point. It was really popular. Everyone knows Hamilton. Everyone, I, I didn't know that that this was a thing that you, that with Hamilton, people listen to the soundtrack. You know, no one could see this kid the damn play, so they listened to the soundtrack and they knew it. And I actually just watched Hamilton on Disney Plus and no, knowing absolutely nothing about it. And the person I was watching it with was like singing and dancing, or not? They were like singing it and they knew the words. I'm like, have you seen this before? I'm like, oh no. It's like, how do you know all the words? So that's a thing. But so I think there's a market for the Broadway actors. And maybe if they are even fresh face, I think it would have worked. Um, I don't know. I think, if- I think the problem with that is that just to jump in real quick, you can't get the kind of budget he wanted for this movie without yeah. having a star. 
and a couple of stars to really hang it on. And I mean, Emma Stone was was a good is a good name. It's a good star to yeah. have in your movie. Ryan Gosling sells tickets to the audience that he's trying to hit with this. So, I mean, $30 million is not a lot of money in Hollywood standards. Let's be honest. The fact that they pulled off what they did for $30 million bucks is a testament to good, smart production, all right, and good, well-budgeted production. But they got $30 million to make it instead of fifteen because they had Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone in it. And, I mean, and, that, yeah. that's true. I mean, and it, I, and it, I, if, you, if you have unknowns, what this is going to be is the small art movie that maybe gets made for $10 million, maybe it makes fourteen. You know, and then is is still the award winner, but nobody knows it because nobody saw it. Everybody yeah. saw the movie except me, apparently. It's just a shame because you know, because then we get to the like their first like number together, a lovely night, and that is when I start to go. That's when I start to be like, oh man, it, this it starts to rain because I I love the premise, I love the lyrics, the chemistry between the two. Like I love the banter, like they're walking back from the party. Which is a funny moment when he's he's playing in the cover band to get yeah. work and and he's like uh, play I ran and she's dancing along like that would like that worked and he's just like uh, man you know what, that, that's a great scene in a Judd Apatow movie or something that's not a scene in this movie like it it seems out of place like I get it and yes I laughed at it but I also felt like that seems like something that like Jonah Hill should come through now <laughs> as like you know the older brother or something like there's just. I don't know. Like it's a and, I, and part of that is I associate Emma Stone with that group and things like that. But I'm yeah. looking at this and, and Ryan Gosling is playing it exactly like he's supposed to. Incredibly annoyed and like, oh god, I can't <laughs> believe I'm up here doing this. I'm playing one key on the board, you know. And two hours ago, I was playing jazz, you know, whatever. But he's trying to do this, and I, I had a little personal laugh. I, I had a band in college, and I recruited the guy to play fiddle for us. We were a country band, and he was a concert violinist, but he liked country music, so it, you know he didn't <laughs> bother him. But I always felt like, man, we're really wasting Jeff's talent. <laughs> you know, and he's got to feel sometimes like, is that all you really want me to do? So I had a laugh with that personally. But again, that feels like it's in a different movie. That, that's the mm-hmm. part about this thing that I, I just it's why I keep going back to my food analogy. It's all these great ingredients, but there doesn't seem to be like an end in mind of what the the souffle is supposed to be or what the soup's supposed to be. And so it doesn't really quite congeal like by itself. That's a funny clip. That's a funny moment. But in context of the movie, it sets up an okay song. I'm not a big fan of a, a lovely night. I didn't think it was that good. I think honestly, the best song is when you get a little further in their relationship and it's city of stars, because that encapsulates what this movie is supposed to be about. The, the cynical part of you that realizes I love you, but we're going to ruin each other's careers. So we should not be together. I mean, that's what that song is about. It's got that minor key and all that. I, I love that one. And I think after that, everything just falls off the cliff musically in this movie. Yeah. I mean, well, and like specifically a lovely night, like, you know, I, I love like, like my favorite moment is when it's like, you know, it's a great view. They shot it on location, obviously color correcting, but it looks great. Uh, you think that'd be on a soundstage, but it's not. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, you know, other people would love this site, but it's only here for us. Like what a waste. And then, you know, Emma Stone, you know, let's, let's be, let's make something clear. Uh, I'll be the one to make that call, but you're a call and you know, you look so cute in your polyester suit. It's wool. You're right. You never call. And that, like, I like that back and forth. I love like when she's putting on the tap shoes and like, he's like, he's throwing the dirt on her and they're like going back. He's looking in her purse. Like, I like that. But then they start dancing. And Ryan, well, Ryan Gosling started singing, and immediately I was like, "Oh man!" Like you're, tr- it sucks because he's trying so hard. Like 
look at him play the piano. Like that was him doing that. And, and he just like sat down for, I think it was like a month or two. And he just practiced like four to six hours a day. And he shows up on set and rocks out and he like plays all these things. And you're like, Oh my God, that's amazing. And then he starts singing and you're like, Oh man. And then they start dancing and it just feels so stiff. And I'll tell you what hurts it, Mike, what hurts it is all of the professional dancers that they brought from New York and from, you know, LA that are doing that kind of work who are around them all the time. That's what really hurts a movie. When you try to have people sing and dance in it, who are then surrounded by people who do that for a living. And you can tell like these actors have no, like they can do a little bit, but they can't really do it. Like most actors can sing a little bit because at some point in their acting training, they have to do it. You know, and Emma Stone has a, cute enough voice and can do and i thought gosling did okay you know for what he was Hmm. given but compare it when you get him next to like john legend and some of these other people it's like that doesn't really match does it and you're you're right to call it the day i i don't think that they were choreographed well and i don't know if it's they just couldn't do it or that they didn't want them to look and maybe as polished as the background dancers because they're supposed to be the polished ones. But again, that that old juxtaposition of what kind of movie am I in again? Because if I'm in a Fred Astaire movie and everybody dances gorgeously, well, I'm okay with that because I kind of expect it. It's just part of life. It's what they do. But in this movie, if everybody had looked like they were just trying to get it together and go through the motions, it would have matched better. But am I making sense there? Yeah, and like the thing is, like they don't need to be perfect. Like you watch, I, I keep referencing the young girls of Rochford and Umbrellas of Cherbourg because I just recently watched them. But in the beginning opening of Young Girls of Rochford, they're essentially they're they're in this town of Rochford and they're setting up for this big carnival. And it's and it's very similar. It's it's uh, to like the opening of this or like West Side Story, like the musicals of the '60s, where they're like dancing around, they're setting things up. But the dancers aren't necessarily in sync. But that's okay because there's a fluidity and there's like a chemistry with the director and the film with the audience. Like it's okay. But here it just it just feels like robots or like aliens. I don't really know like what to do. Like you know you have the classic or the the quote unquote iconic classic from the poster where they're just like you're gonna see me do it on the video just like the and like the like the uh, Egyptian arms and. And they just bust those moments or when he's like doing like the, the circles, like to, I, I don't know how to, I don't know the names of the moves. I'm sure. Irina would know it, but I don't, but you're just like, ah, oh, man, this feels so forced and unnatural. Yes. Forced and unnatural. And that, I'm glad you said that because what, what you're describing is they're trying to, to make you feel like you're in the real world. This is what it's really like for struggling actors and actresses, but then we're going to lay over it all this artificial stuff that is clearly not part of the real world. And then we're going to force back into people to try to be realistic in the artificial world. And that, I mean, that's a whole theme in this movie is how do you be real in, in a world that is completely fake? You know, that's the line about Hollywood is, is uh, again, how do you be yourself in a place where you're, you know, beaten down to not be anything, but what's on the page or the script or you know, what you're supposed to be for the, for the moment. And I, I, it just doesn't meld again. Like it, uh, if all of the background again was out of sync and everybody was just kind of struggling, it would at least match. Or if everybody was perfect, because then the world and it would match because everything looks so gorgeous. 
and pristine and beautiful. It's not like they went to the part of LA that Michael Mann shoots for collateral and shot any of this, you know, the real parts of LA, right? They're showing you the, the glossy version and the imperfection in the middle of it. And I think we're supposed to appreciate that. But for me, it takes me out of the movie and it reminds me again of something you said at the opening. You're never not aware that you're watching a movie. You never can get engrossed in, I can never get engrossed enough in this story, Mike, to realize I'm watching a movie about people making movies or making songs or whatever it is, you know, and that, uh, that bothers me because in a competently directed film like this, that's got all of this, that it's got going for it. It, it bothers me that they can never help me find the escape into the story. I'm always aware I'm watching something that is fake. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ironic, at least to me where it's like, they're making a movie about how much they love movies and how, like, the, you know, the escape of movies, like, the whole opening number is just why people love movies and why, a reason why people want to be on the, like, on the big screen and be in the limelight. It's not so much for the fame, it's, like, for the magic of cinema. And this movie is, like, lacking, especially at this moment in the film, it's lacking so much magic that it's trying to emulate. And that's very, I th- it's a shame. So, I, and so I just feel like when I was, the first time I watched this, I was like, okay, so... Some feel a little bit off. And the second time I was like, okay, like I tried justifying it of being like, oh, it's, it's okay. It's just, it's me. I'm not going with it. And then as time goes on, I'm like, no, it's definitely in the movie. Um, and then, and I do, I listed the, like the songs in my notes of just what I thought worked and what didn't work. Uh, Lovely Night didn't work for me. City of Stars, like you mentioned it, I just have eh next to it. Like it's, I think it's mostly, it's not so much the lyrics. It's just the, it's the delivery of everything. With Ryan Gosling, I think I just can't get over his voice. See, and the, the part of it I like that the fact that he is a little off in it and it is a little off kilter. Like I think I appreciated that. Part of that is my own sensibilities. I mean, I like you know John Waite and uh, old Bob Dylan stuff and Leonard Cohen and you know I, I can appreciate artists that aren't always perfectly on key, you know, and things like that. And the replacements again, I'll go back to them. Paul Westerberg's a big one for me. I I don't. I don't, I don't need everybody to be like perfect, pristine take on everything. I kind of liked that it was a little bit off and it was a little sideways that he was playing this little, you know, jazzy minor riff and that that's supposed to be their song. Like I kind of, I thought that was what the cool thing was. Cause usually when you get to their song or our song, what it's always something sappy or sweet. Right. And that's fine. But for their song to have been something that's kind of dark and menacing, it, I thought it was cool. That, that That's yeah. when I thought the movie allowed itself to be cool. And I was like, yes, please be cool like that. <laughs> and then it would be cool anymore. And what do you think about like this whole like second act of just them like building their relationship, you know, like kind of like going from spring or from spring to summer to fall where they're, you know, they're having fun there, which is funny because the song that they use throughout that moment, I think it's the opening to Guy and Matt on a park bench. So Justin Horowitz is like, he's had the music. Like mm-hmm. they just been waiting for the moment, the opportunity to use it. Um, and they've been like, you know, sprinkling it in a little bit throughout the film and referencing yeah. it. But like, what did you, what did you think about like their chemistry? Like throughout, you know, they're at the jazz cat, they're at the jazz cafe, which I like, the, I like the moment, like very energetic, but it's, but what about those, those scenes of just, I want to save jazz. Like, did that I, work for you? No, did- I, I, because again, I, I do, I do point it back to, I get that that's his dream. But John Legend is exactly right. You say you want to save the thing, but there's no method. You have no plan to do that. Like, what? how are you going to do it? 
you know, and, and uh, in the end, he does come up with a plan for it. Like, I'm going to have a club where we celebrate it for young people. I'm going to have, you know, youthful things in here, but I'm going to introduce it to people and not beat them over the head with like, I can't believe you don't like this. You're not, you know, the, uh, appealing to the classics from kids. You know, you don't understand good music. You just listen to this garbage pop music all the time. And instead of doing that, he sort of comes around and says, okay, you know what? I get it. You like your stuff. Let me show you where the root of it comes from. Moreover, let me show you something that once you get into it, you'll realize how free and cool it is. I, I like the part where Sebastian is talking about how jazz is you know, three or four people going in their own direction at the same time, and somehow it works together. The chaos of it was kind of neat how he describes it, because I've known a lot of jazz musicians. I'm not one. I can't play that stuff. I'm, I admire it immensely. But that's exactly how they would describe it, is you, you kind of know what key you're in. And you're just going. And every now and then somebody else takes the lead. And I, I like that. I, I like the way he described that. And in some subversive way, I think that's the director at the musical people here trying to go like, see, kids, this is why jazz is cool. But then on the other hand, they almost cut their own throat with it by having John Legend, who is a pop star and an R&B star, yeah. in addition to being a great musician. But he is a star and he writes popular stuff. To have him come in and go like, yeah, that's cool. But if you want to be on the radio you got to start a fire. And he, and then we have that music video in the middle of the thing, which is yeah. just kind of strange. I mean, it, it's, it makes sense. Like, yes, we should see that. We should have that. But I don't, I don't know. I, you, oh, to go back to your original question, what did I think of the whole relationship thing? I'll be honest with you. I checked out on most of it. I was just, I, I, <laughs> I wasn't into it. I thought they had okay chemistry together, but again, I'm never not aware that I'm watching two people who I, I already know because I've seen the movie that they're not going to end up together. And it's not like that's a huge secret when it comes around, you know, that that's not this big <gasps> shock moment. Aha, uh -huh, you know, or something. They set it up from the, almost the beginning that these people shouldn't be together. And that, I, I get it. I get why they're not. And I, I didn't really care much for their relationship pieces. And I, I thought it went on too long with the ups and downs that both of them had. I and mean, he finally gets a good steady paying gig and things like that, but he hates it, you know? And so, cause he feels like he's selling out. And on the other hand, she's going like, I can't even get hired jerk, you know? And, but there wasn't enough of that tension. Like, again, they didn't have enough of the relationship drama for me to care about it because they didn't want me to care about it, Mike. They wanted me to watch all the pretty songs and the pretty people in the pretty colors. And that's what bothers me about the second act of this movie is you on one hand, you're asking me to care about the drama here, but you're not giving me enough time to do so. Yeah. And like the whole thing with like John Legend, it's just it just feels so weird to me that you can't do both. You know, it's either like you're either a sellout or you're, you're, you have principles. Like if, yeah, if you, can, if can you I just say that way, you, that is such bullshit and has been proven oh, yeah. that way. So when, Billy Joel has proven that for years, he can do all of his pop songs and he doesn't care that they're pop songs. He's happy that they're popular and then he'll play his classical stuff. And if you don't buy any of it, he don't care. He's doing it for him, but then he's going to come back and play uptown girl. Because he, yeah. he knows, like, that that's the thing that bothers me. is like, this myth has been disproven by every famous musician ever. Like, you know what? I want to go and write concertos for a year. Go right ahead, but make sure you get back together with your band and write a couple of hit songs sometime before people forget you. Sure, we'll go do that. Like, that that is such a dumb premise. I'm sorry. No, it is. And I was, like, I was listening to a podcast uh, a few years ago. I think it was, I think it was Freddie Wong or... Uh, nice Peter from Epic Rap Battles of History. I think that like they were there was Rhett and Link's podcast from YouTube, and they were interviewing them, and it was one of them. They were talking about 
how they knew one of the guitarists that like a lead guitarist that toured with Katy Perry. And it was the whole dynamic of like, well, I'm playing like simple riffs that like a beginner could play, but I'm making like tons of money doing it. And then it's like, well, this money is allowing me to pursue other interests and like, you know, actually like uh, advance my own skill in the guitar and, you know, do projects that I want to do. So it's like you can, you know, have your cake and eat it too. But it's just this weird dynamic of you're either a sellout who makes a ton of money or you're going to be the lonely bohemian that makes no, no one listens to but you have principles and, and you're standing up for it. It's just a weird dynamic. And then – and I think the thing about – the characters and like why the relationship like when they have their big fight or like at the end of the movie like why it doesn't really work for me like yeah it's sad on like a superficial level when they have their fights and they like break up and at the end of the movie we'll, we'll get to that like it, it it's sad on a superficial level because you know the music's very manip is not i don't want to say manipulative that's almost has like a negative connotation it, it's, it's used appropriately but the thing about like these characters is that they're all concerned with these selfish desires and it never feels like they're connecting. Whereas like, you know, again, the, the characters of Jacques Demy, they're all concerned with love. Like every, like it, it just feels so naturalistic that the, the, the characters motivations are finding people that complete them and they're all singing about love. And that, you know, that's like the, of the time as well, but it works there when at the, when, um, in umbrellas of Torberg, when, uh, um, when the two characters, when they split up and you see the main, um, uh, Deneuve, you see her, uh, with the, ter the, like just having her relationship pro problems with, with her, uh, with guy, you're just like, wow, that's really sad and depressing. Cause you, it, it just works. But here you're just like, Oh, they're having a fight. What? Like, I don't really yeah. feel anything about. It. And then at the end of the movie, when we have like the what if scenario, it's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's sad. Cause we all have like those longings and regrets, but the relationship doesn't really feel compelling to me. Yeah. Let me ask you this though. Here's, here's the thing about the end of this that feels so false. All right. Cause that, they go on that little quick journey, right. To show us what might've been or whatever. But is there anybody watching this with any brain in your head that thinks for one second, these people were better off if they ended up together. Cause what that show is a fantasy. The reality was if they stayed together, neither one of them would have achieved what they needed to achieve. Right. And so that's why that feels like, well, why are you showing that? Because it, there's in no way is that possibly true. Sebastian cares about uh, Mia a lot. And I think he comes to respect her to the point that he's the thing that finally pushes her to go back and give it one more try. Right. Because during his sellout job, he missed her great performance that he had pushed her to do. He really believes in her talent. Like you can tell he does and he cares for her, but he can never be the sideline guy. He's not just going to wait for her to be a star and then him to, you know, just kind of pick up the pieces behind her. So he has his own selfish desires. Like you say, it doesn't stop him from doing the right thing. And when he gets that phone call from the casting director and going and finding her and going, you need to go and follow through with this. I know you're going to make it. It's going to work. He believes in her. And I like the fact that they are friends in some ways and they can remain friends and be friendly. Like there, there's a good reality to that. And I thought it was cool. I hated that they undercut it with the fantasy scene. I didn't need that. I could have, if he had just played city of stars and kind of looked over at her and winked and she winked back at him and she turned around and walked out with her husband, that would have been fine. I didn't need the whole fantasy break. We could have just gone back and seen those moments when they met and when they danced together and when they broke up. And now that they're back together and sort of bring us full circle instead of have this 
complete delusion out of nowhere. <laughs> what did you think of like I guess like the one of the uh, the moments that, that we as the audience are supposed to be like all oh, like they're in love is the whole you know seeing Rebel without a cause and the planetarium number. What did you think of that number? It like I have that as kind of worked under my notes. Uh, it's okay. I mean, it, it it works in the sense that this is the part of the movie that's in love with old Hollywood. And it knows yep. that other people who are in love with old Hollywood are going to get a kick out of that. And so if it's going to pay homage and it's going to be sort of this classic romance thing, they're going to do all that. I thought it was fine. And by that, I mean, it's perfectly okay. It's not great. It's also not terrible. It also doesn't really do anything. <laughs> like that's the, yeah. point, the the point of it that frustrates me is that that leads to not I don't know anything more about these people because of that. Like you know when you see numbers like that in in other musicals or even in just, you just see moments like that in other movies, it's because we're building these characters. We already know who these two people are at this point. We know what they can be together. That doesn't strengthen or lessen their relationship at all for me. Like it did it 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 gave me nothing more no more insight into who they were than anything else that they did. Yeah, it feels very much like of I feel like the scene why it kind of works. Like I like the imagery and I like all that. It's like it's it's like callbacks to you know the Gene Kelly musicals where in the middle there's like some unrelated number that they do. Although this like tries to do something with characterization, but my issue is it's so fantastical. And then they, but the movie, there's no like fantastical elements at all. Like they float up and they're dancing in the stars, but then like there's nothing like that ever again in the movie. Uh, Maybe in the, maybe in the beginning of like with uh, another day of sun and someone in the crowd where it's like kind of like fantastical and like, oh, this wouldn't really happen. But here they're like, floating in the planetarium. You, you know what like, would have made that work better? Like, let me just rewrite the movie for you real quick. These are two people who wind up doing musical theater as the fallback to what they really want to do. Be a jazz player, be a, you know, a movie actress, but they keep getting cast in these things. So if we see them on a set and they, they have the wire work and they're doing all of this stuff and it's how they're falling in love, like that's a good narrative piece because you've already pulled the curtain behind so many other things anyway. You might as well have them show us all that behind the scenes, like how this is being made and let that be part of their life rather than just randomly they're dancing on the wind and then the next day they're stuck in traffic. Like that is again, it's all these elements thrown together that don't match. And that that's why this movie is so back and forth. Like I, I don't understand. It's like half the time I'm watching a cartoon and the other time half the time I, I again I'm watching a Neil LeBute play. And I don't know which one I'm supposed to like. Uh yeah, and this I'm I'm like oh I'm really hung up on this um this like non uh fantastical where it doesn't really like feel earned. There's this uh I there's this indie musical. I, I've been trying to look it up, and I can't find it, and I don't remember the name of it. But essentially, it's uh, Brian introduced it to me, and I'll email it to you just so you could see it, like on off air. But essentially, the whole musical is just this guy like going through a relationship with this girl, and he's being judged in like the afterlife, and he's like reviewing it, and it's all told through song. I'm like, okay, this works because it's set up that it's all fantastical, and yeah. you know, it's 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 very like surreal, and and that was made, it's an indie musical, so it was made for, you know, like, I don't know, like $1,000 essentially, like nothing. It was made for nothing. And so when things like this planetarium sequence comes in, I was like, okay, like it doesn't feel earned. And I feel like a lot of this movie just doesn't feel earned. Uh, yeah, you've, you've hit on something there. So much of this just absolutely doesn't feel earned. Again, it's borrowing from 
tropes and sensibilities of other things that it knows the audience that's going to see it probably likes and loves. Right. So it's, I mean, I hate to go back to this again because it's almost been overused in and of itself, but the South Park episodes about member berries that came oh, yeah. out after after The Force Awakens, those guys weren't wrong. Trey, Trey and Matt are pretty good about diagnosing pop culture, among other things. And it, it, to remember this, you like this, right? So here's some more of it. Does it make sense in context? No, but you like it. So here it is. It, it's it's a crutch in storytelling to rely on nostalgia, right? And, and it's it's not always a bad thing. And I don't want to sound like I'm just some old man yelling at a cloud about it. Cause I like nostalgia too. I, I love to be taken away, but this movie constantly takes me somewhere and then jerks me back to reality. It takes me somewhere and jerks me back to reality. And that's the problem with it. It, it doesn't say consistent. And so when, when he misses her gig, I want to ask you this, when he misses her thing, cause he's at the music video that he doesn't want to be at. Right. Do you, get that that's like the last straw for her at that moment. I don't know that it was earned that that was the end for him. Like I did he screw up enough for her to just dump him like that? No. And I think it's, I don't think so. And I think it's supposed to be more like, Oh, you're a different person because you're selling out. Cause at one point, like she goes to his performance at this big thing and he's like j- jamming out and she just looks like so hurt that he's doing it. Right. Like, what I'm like, did you, what were you expecting? But you like, told him to do it. Yeah, you told him to do it, get a paycheck, and then you're there, and you're like, oh, you, and then they have that big fight when he like burns the chicken of like, oh, you're a sellout. It's like, well, what you should know, you're like, you're a struggling actress, you have no work, or something like shit like that. Yeah. So, and then he misses the performance, and yeah, that's something like I can understand the embarrassment where the only people there are your friends in the front row, and you rented this theater, and you know you sunk a lot into it, and then the dude that promise he'd be there was who supports you the most wasn't but is that enough to be like fuck this i'm i'm going home i don't want to i don't want anything to do with you i don't i don't care and then of course the next day or the week later however long it was oh you see the person in the background like way in the back saying okay yeah i really like this uh we want we want this we want mia to be in our our film this this next big Broadway film, like, or not, I'm sorry, not Broadway, uh, blockbuster. I don't know why I said Broadway. Like, we need this next, the, she's the next it girl. We need someone, like, humble and beginnings. Um, yeah, I, but I don't know. It yeah. definitely did not feel earned or, like, warranted, or, like, enough to be, like, no, I'm going home. I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, the, the best piece of acting in this whole movie actually comes when he drags her back to that audition, and Emma Stone has to tell that story about her aunt that, died an alcoholic and a failed you know performer herself yep, and the it's, audition. It's, that's, yeah that's i really like yeah. that's like that's when the movie i'm back into it a little yeah bit i'm more. like that now that's a movie that's a story that's i'm like okay if they give you the award they give you the statue for that i'm not going to balk at it too much because that was a really good performance and it was it was good i'm like i get it that's really cool that's what inspired her you get it the fact that they come out of that to another cheesy do you think i'm gonna make it sebastian moment just blows my mind and makes me so mad because that's such an earned thing like she should walk out and go i don't know i was just me and he's like that's all you should be anyway and if they they had gone and got a milkshake or something after that yeah that would have been so much better rather than let's sing and dance some more like that seems so false at the moment yeah and like i really like i felt i remember specifically watching audition and it's so simple 
and cinematography, the lighting dims. It's just a spotlight on her camera pans forward. There's a, a 360 around her and then it pans backwards. It's simple, minimalist filmmaking. And, you know, Giselle knows like, and, and I think, I think Emma Stone was like the right, well, she did really well here. I, you know, I could debate either way if she deserve if she deserved the Oscar. If anything, I think for that scene alone is like a really strong argument for at least being nominated. Um, but yeah, I think, and I do have some songs from the soundtrack on my iPod, and Audition is definitely one of them because I, I, she just nails it. I think every, in every sense of the word, she just crushed that performance. Like she she did well. And again, that's the kind of thing that I expect. It, these these guys to be able to write, you know, basic and Paul, that's the kind of stuff they write. This really deeply emotional, reflective stuff. I mean, Dear Evan Hansen is full of that stuff. It's got songs in it just like that. And and that's what I thought of when I was watching it, listening to it. I was like, I, I see it. I get it. Yeah. This, that's what sells it. That's a, that's a moment when everything landed right about the movie. The fact that it comes back into whirlwind goofiness afterward is just what's so I don't know, dumb about it. Like, I, I just hate to say that, but I mean, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me, you know? And then I, I got to ask you, you know, we go to the five years later. I mean, what do you think about where they are? And do you think that that was earned that Sebastian would start his own club again, try to introduce the kids to real music, you know, his way. And that Mia was married, had a kid and was a famous actress. I can get behind Seb opening his club. Because you know it's it's the club where they they serve um, the tapas that he hates, and it's just like a discreet because it was an old ja- uh, jazz cafe, and I and I can believe that more because you know he's touring with John Legend, and you know he's making money. I believe that a little bit more because that was like his passion from the get go. But Mia, you know, walking into the cafe, uh, like the coffee shop on the on the studio lot that she used to work at, and like now it's the roles reversed, but she's you know really nice about it. It just feels weird within like five years now she's like this mega super successful like it almost feels like uh it's funny i just watched birdman yesterday just rewatched it and um you know my theory at the end of the movie is that you know it's like in the hospital but that's not real it's it's all it's 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 all like this fever dream of you know the de- like right before death takes him it's because every it's like almost too perfect like it's cookie cutter everything that they wanted happens and you're like okay well this can't be real and that's what it feels like here we're like, wait, are we still in like some fantasy or something where they're going to wake up and they're just laying in bed and we're going to end with them just like, would you like you had a, do you have a weird dream or something? Like, I thought it was going to not not that I really thought it was going to be like that, but it just feels like that. It doesn't feel very it just feels too per, like perfect where, oh, I'm in that now this like big extravagant house in Beverly Hills with this beautiful husband and like this like perfect child and like the perfect nanny. Um I don't know. It just, for her, it felt a little, little, maybe not after five years. I don't know. That, that just felt a little. That, that's what I was going to say. The five years part of what gets me. Like, if it was 10 years later, because I feel like they gave her the kid because they're like, if she was just married to another guy, but she ran into him again, well, it's Hollywood. She dumped that dude and go, but she's got a family. You know, there's something to ground her in it a little bit more. At least that's what they're trying to say, which feels also oddly from a different time than what this movie is a lot of its other, uh, you know, sexual politics and the other things it's got going on. So I, I don't know where all that came from, but it, it, I don't know. It just feels like it was almost too much too fast 
You know, like, get, if it had been it 10 years, I could have bought it. The problem is, is that there's no way you can make yeah, Emma Stone look 10 years older. Like Ryan Gosling, it's pretty easy. You just go color his hair for a little bit, you know, and let, let the, the salt and pepper show for her. She's got to, she's going to perpetually look young. She just has a young look. That's hmm. just her look. It You wouldn't like buy that. She had aged a minute. That was also part of the problem. They didn't look any older. Like the difference from your late twenties to your mid thirties, Mike, I got news for you. You look a lot different. Okay. You just, you just change. It's part of life. Uh, that, that's what also felt weird. That also felt like from an earlier version of the script where these were like, you know, babies, like 20 year olds. And then all of a sudden they were 25 at the end versus being 26 or 27. And then in their mid thirties by the end of it, that's, that's what felt strange to me. It's also jarring because you go from the conversation of them sitting saying like, well, what's going to happen to us? Like, we don't know, but it's okay. Like everything's fine. Like things will happen. Things will fall into place. And then it's like five years later. And then we, and it's like almost instantaneously, like they're not like she walks into the house and then she's kissing another dude. And then there's a child there. And you're like, Oh wow. Like two minutes ago, they were literally sitting at a park bench talking about, well, we are not sure what our future is going to be. Like there's no, I, I wish there was a little bit of uh a little bit of a more like smoother transition between that. But then I do like the moment when we're at like the final epilogue or maybe the epilogue, like the final number. Uh, well, it works for me. I think on a visual standpoint, it does work because I remember watching this the first time and my jaw, like almost hit the floor because it's just so like, because the whole movie, there's nothing like this. And then we suddenly go into this big fantasy, but like you were saying now who I've come back after what a few years now and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's very a great visual spectacle. I think you know, it's it. There's so much conveyed with no dialogue, which is where I think Chazelle shines. But again, it's just this like weird fantasy, this delusional fantasy of like, well, what if? And but it's like, no, that realistically probably wouldn't happen, you know. And that just feels like kind of weird to end your movie on a a, a like a, a weird wish like a. Yeah, why would you have a dream Delusion. sequence at an end of a movie where you have focused on the 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 harsh reality of life against all the fantastical stuff that you've thrown? I mean, in some level, like you would want that, and it is a great what if moment. But you could get what if because you've got two actors that can give looks where you can tell they're kind of thinking in their head, like, "Hmm, what what if? Oh well." And then they move on. Like again, that's more poignant if he's playing that song and they share a look and then she smiles and walks away more than let's now detour into Albuquerque and have this crazy Bollywood thing happen or whatever. I mean, it just, it just comes out of nowhere. And I, I feel like it's, it's not earned and it's a little false at the end. I, I'm glad they don't yeah. end up together. I think that's exactly right. They shouldn't be together. Like they, I, I think the movie earned that. I, I don't think it earned the goofy dream sequence at the end. And because it just yeah. feels again, the problem is, is you've got people who are supposed to be older than like, you know, they're just fresh out, fresh faces that then give up and we catch them in midway. These are people that have been there for years and haven't quite made it yet. And now we're going to catch up with them when they're adults. So when they're older adults, you just think differently when you're, you know, when you're removed that many years removed from your youth. And it, that's why it seems so odd. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's just strange and a, a jarring thing. And I'll say this. I mean, we've talked about it at dance around enough, and I need to say specifically the production design of this movie is great. It looks amazing. I don't know that it completely works narratively and brings together, but it looks beautiful. The cinematography is great. All that stuff is good. The sounds good. You know, it, I mean, it's competently put together and stuff. Again, the sum total of the parts though, all those great parts, I don't think 
earns the reputation this movie has. But maybe that's just me. So I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. I'm really curious to hear what yours are, Mike. <laughs> yeah, so um, – yeah, so it's it's interesting. Like, if you were to ask me when this first came out, I would have been like, "Yeah, this is a great movie. A strong recommend. Large popcorn." But now we're a few years post that. You know, I've I've had a I've grown a little bit more. I've my repertoire of films has grown, and my appreciation for this film has changed. So at the end of the day, I it's I would still recommend it. It's it's a very weak recommend. Um, they just be like, yeah. I mean, like, if you want to be exposed to musicals, like, you, I mean, there's worse places you could go. I think it's it's good to introduce something. Like, this would be like, like, I want to just throw someone into the French New Wave or something like an American in Paris, which the end of this movie was just an American in Paris, um, or just like a Gene Kelly film. Like, I wouldn't necessarily want to throw someone who doesn't really know musicals into that yet. So I'd maybe introduce them to La La Land, but okay. You see the foundation. You see where people get inspirations from. So let's watch those inspirations. So I'd give it a weak recommend, like, uh, but I think I'm gonna give it like, I don't know, the smallest of medium popcorns, if that makes sense. Like, it's it's not a small popcorn, but it's definitely not like a large. So I, I think I'm gonna give like a mild medium popcorn, like hold off on the butter. I, it's like, it's like a medium with like no butter, maybe a little too much salt, if that makes sense. So that I, I, a weak recommend in the end. I, I hear what, I hear what you're saying. And I, I'll tell you for me, the first time I saw this, if I were, have been thinking about how I would have rated it for a film strip, I would have said the same thing. I'm ultimately going to say here. It's, it's the definition of what I call the, the frustrating medium popcorn. It's mm-hmm. got all the elements to be so much more. So it's it's not a complete disaster. So it's not small popcorn, bad and burnt. It's also not dumb enough to be small popcorn fun, you know, like Leprechaun 3 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's not in that category. It's also not good enough to be large or extra large. It's definitely not extra large. I'm telling you, th- people in 20 years are still going to be talking about an American in Paris. They're not going to be talking about this movie. Sorry, they're just not. I don't care how much money it made how many awards it got. They're not going to remember this one because again, this director is going to make something better. I, I'm firm believer. He's already made better films and he'll make a better one down the line. I, I'm convinced of it. The writers involved with this, the music they've they've done better and they'll continue to do better. I, no doubt. This there's nothing memorable about this except for the fact that it's completely unmemorable. Like there's <laughs> nothing about this that stays with me. And again, I've watched this movie now three times and trying to recall all the, the details of it, it's like it just goes in my brain and it just evaporates because it's water vapor. It's not really that substantive. And that's why it's medium popcorn because it could be so much more, but it's just kind of blah. It's just that, like, I thought I wanted popcorn and I get about halfway through the bag and I'm like, eh, maybe not. And I just toss it, throw it to the birds and let them take it away into the, the never, never land that this movie wishes it was in. Music in this movie... Uh, I don't know. I'm not really here to grade the soundtrack. I liked, you know, City of Stars. The John Legend song is fine if you like that kind of thing. I mean, it's fine. I, I'm not going to, you know, damn it for being, you know, too much of a sellout or too much pop or too much this. It's it's fine. It it sounds like what it's supposed to sound like, something that's influenced by a lot better things, but that would probably be a, a slam and hit at a club. Okay. Yeah. The rest of it, though, 
eh, it's just kind of okay. And that's how I feel about La La Land. I think it's just kind of okay. I mean, it's just sort of there. What I, if I was trying to introduce this to people that don't really listen to musicals and things like that, well, Mike, I did that. My wife doesn't do musical theater <laughs> that much. She's not really into them. She's seen some of the classic ones, obviously. But I, she was starting to watch this one with me the first time I was watching it for the review. And she was like, what's this about again? And I said, I think these two people, like they, they're supposed to be together, but they're not going to make it, and this is their struggle. And she's like, these songs aren't really that good. I said, no, they're not. She's like, they can't really dance that well. I said, no, they can't. Yep. <laughs> and I realized like, if you're not into musicals and you watch this and you think this is what musicals are, I'm sorry. No, they're not. Like you should really start with something like West Side Story or Sound of Music or something like that. I think you get a much better taste and sense of what that's like. Um, the other thing is, and you talked about your friends that listen to Hamilton and they, you know, they know all the words and stuff like that. I have musical soundtracks that I listen to. I haven't seen the shows, right? I, but I know the music and I know the songs just as well as I know anything from it. Right. And I feel like I know the story from all of that because the music's great and it really works. Like I, I'll give you a couple of contemporaries. Dear Evan Hansen's one I've dropped several times in this podcast. It's great soundtrack. The songs on it are amazing. The Beetlejuice uh, musical, the songs in that are amazing and are so much fun to listen to, you know, and I can't wait for the time when I can actually go see the shows and enjoy them for what they are. But the soundtracks, if I just listened to those, I would be fine and satisfied. I have no reason whatsoever to put the soundtrack on and listen to it. <laughs> like, no, like I would listen to City of Stars. Like, I, I listened to that before we got on uh, tonight earlier today. I just popped it up because I wanted to get it in my head. And I was like, that's a really cool little tune. I was like, doesn't really fit this movie entirely, but it is a cool <laughs> idea. So I, maybe it'll get recycled somewhere. But for me, it's medium popcorn as well. Mike, thanks again for coming on Film Strip. It's glad to have you on. We'll definitely have you on again. We'll do something non-musical next time. I promise. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Tell folks what's going on on Amateur Artures, how they can find you here in uh, this great November as we wind up the year. Yeah, so you can uh, find us on Twitter at AltoursPod. You can email us uh, at the Amateur Altours Podcast at gmail.com. We're on Spotify, iTunes. I'm sure we're on like random other things that uh, like other podcasting mediums. But um, yeah, currently we at, at the time of uh, when this is coming out, we're probably just about to uh, like really working on our new project, releasing episodes of uh, I. Uh, it's Star Wars D and D, where it's me and Brian are playing um, an original Star Wars story written by me. Uh, I'm really excited. We're new to D and D. We're very casual with it, and I'm just trying to tell a good story. So I'm trying to make it like a radio show. I have tons of notes. Like I showed UJ like my notes. I'm trying to put so much work into this, and um, I'm trying to make. I'm trying to just make a tell a good story. Uh, we're still continuing the MCU movies with my buddy Jake. And, uh, you know, Brian and I are just trying to squeeze uh, time to do a review in of something just whenever we both have time. He's in school. I, I work night shifts as a healthcare worker. So, you know, time is, it's, you know, hard pressed as I find out as I'm growing up. But um, it's, it's, all, it's all good for the passion. I love doing this. But, yeah, the big thing is our, our Star Wars adventure called Legacy of the Frontier. That's what we're working on right now. And I, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Hope everyone else enjoys it, too. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I'm really pumped about it. Uh, that's going to be a blast. So check that out again, Amateur Artours, wherever you find your podcast, and follow them at Artours Pod on Twitter. Mike, thanks again for coming on Filmstrip. Really appreciate it. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode. You can follow the show at filmstrippodcast.com. That's where you'll find links to wherever you can download the show. Please leave us a positive review. Share this show on your social media. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Filmstrip Pod and search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook as well. We appreciate the support. So from Mike from Amateur Art Tours, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip.
thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.